From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democrats in the state legislature plan to take on some meaty issues this year. Paid family leave, a public option, the death penalty. But although they're in control, Democrats are not in lockstep. There are a lot of new ideas. These are things that necessarily haven't been vetted year after year after year. Speaker of the House Casey Becker today, followed by a Republican leader tomorrow. Then after death comes burial or cremation or... You become fertilizer. Through a process called water cremation. More in our series Disruptors about new ideas in business. Plus, ever get a whiff of mothballs in Metro Denver? We've tracked down that smell and others. They're all in sort of this industrial Bermuda Triangle. Also, why we got this advice. Walk like a penguin. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Global and national news take up a lot of room these days. Tensions with Iran, impeachment, the presidential race. But this is a huge week in Colorado politics. The legislative session starts Wednesday, and the governor will deliver his state of the state Thursday. So what will Democrats do with their second year of total control at the state capitol? And how will 2020, being an election year, affect their agenda? I sat down with Speaker of the State House Casey Becker of Boulder for a preview. Tomorrow, we'll hear from a Republican leader in the Senate. Speaker, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Last year, with a brand new governor and Democratic control of both houses, you got a sweeping agenda through full day kindergarten, some health care reform, big changes in oil and gas regulation, a major gun law. Do you expect that pace to keep up that many kind of meaty issues to be decided? I think we had a really exciting session last year. We did get a lot done. And, you know, there's a lot more new things and more things that members are working on. How aggressive it is. We're not trying to match last year. We just want to pass good policy. We're not trying to match last year. Just expound on that. There are a lot of new ideas. These are things that necessarily haven't been vetted year after year after year. The, a lot of the legislation we passed last year, we'd been trying for years to pass. So it may not be that degree of impact, but there's still a lot that we're going to work on. Driving down health care costs, we're going to continue to look at gun safety, uh, we're going to continue to address affordability issues in general, we're going to continue to... Of affordability of health care? Affordability of health care, but affordability of just living in Colorado right now. That could be, you know, housing costs, child care costs, and we're going to continue, you know, working towards a clean, greener future in Colorado. Okay, let's break some of that apart. You talked about issues that may not have been discussed before. It it is often the fact that legislation that is successful has been unsuccessful in many previous sessions. What's a new thing you want to take on? Taking the next step forward in clean energy, we're going to be looking at beneficial electrification, for instance. Beneficial electrification. What does that mean? Yeah, it's really how can we advance the use of cleaner sources of energy. And some of that is by continuing and incentivizing electrification of buildings or cars or things like that. You know, in terms of other things that are new, we had a bipartisan school safety committee that looked at how can we really help 
keep schools safe. We're going to be working on mental health or improving the reporting system around school safety issues, not things that we've necessarily done before, but I think are going to be bipartisan and really helpful to Coloradans. Now, you don't have to have Republican input, Speaker Becker. You're in the majority. Is it important to you? Process always matters. Having the majority doesn't mean you get to run roughshod over people. I'm emphasizing, and I know leadership in the Senate is emphasizing, you know, making sure you're talking to folks affected by any policy that you want to run. That being said, we're going to work hard to, you know, make change in the areas that we most want to. We'll say that we'll speak with your Republican counterpart in the Senate uh, on tomorrow's program. Would you say there's a top priority For Democrats this year? I mean, we've talked about a lot of of different issues, but is there a must-do besides the budget, which is a constitutional must-do? Our overarching theme year after year is having an economy that works for all. I think you mentioned housing earlier. That's certainly something that hits people, well, quite literally where they live. What can the state legislature do about the cost of housing? We passed a lot of legislation last year to put more money into affordable housing. We can look at paid family leave as a way to help workers be able to afford to take time off. We're going to look at a retirement security bill. A lot of Coloradans, like in many states, are just not prepared for retirement. So what can the state do to incentivize more people putting money aside for their future? Do you mean like matching it? I don't know that we could actually afford matching it. Mm-hmm. But there are uh, the majority of Coloradans have jobs that don't offer a 401k. If we have let's an, let's pause there. The majority of Coloradans don't have a job that has retirement plans for them. That's true. Okay. Yeah, a lot of hourly employees, small employees. So we want to make the ability to have a retirement plan something that happens more because it impacts people in their futures. It impacts the state if people aren't prepared for retirement. Potentially people who then get onto the state dole, if you will. Absolutely. Okay. I want to talk more about paid family leave in just a bit. But, you know, a lot of the signature proposals that passed uh, last session, full day kindergarten and a health reform called reinsurance, seem to be running significantly over budget. Is there a danger that this feeds into the narrative of Democrats being big, maybe even irresponsible spenders? I don't think full day K or reinsurance or irresponsible policies, both of them help keep money in people's pockets. But we have unique constraints in Colorado around our constitution in terms of how much money we have coming into the state. So even though we have a robust economy, we're not allowed to use the money we're collecting and invest it back in the state. But you knew that going into these big policies. And Tabor is not a surprise, in other words. Right. So it just is going forward, we have to be really thoughtful about the policies and the long-term financial impact of the things that we're passing. Were you not thoughtful enough when it came to reinsurance and full-day kindergarten? I think they're both really successful. I think they have a long-term economic impact that just means tighter budgets going forward. But that doesn't mean that they weren't worth it. But again, we also have to make sure that we're investing in the fundamentals. K-12 education, higher ed, transportation, Speaking of Tabor, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, I just want to say that last year voters rejected a proposal to raise money for transportation and education by giving up refunds provided under Tabor. 
they wanted to keep that money. Uh, Some interest groups say they won't be discouraged by last year's vote, though, that they are preparing a raft of Tabor issues for the November ballot. Good idea. Bad idea. You were instrumental in the last one. I would have liked to see Prop CC pass. It didn't pass, but that doesn't mean that those issues go away. Anyone in Colorado has the opportunity to propose a ballot measure and their own idea for how to address those things. You know, and on these issues, especially transportation, if we don't have new revenue coming into the state, we're only going to do ourselves harm long term. Our gas tax in Colorado is the exact same as it was in 1992. It's not a sustainable funding source until business groups, Republicans and Democrats all come together on a single solution We're going to drive ourselves into the ground, so to speak. I think of the fact that the legislature previously agreed to put another proposal on the ballot for this year, which would allow bonding to pay for projects without raising more revenue. That already was put on hold once. Do you think it'll make it to the ballot this time? So it's been on the ballot in the past and it's failed. Whether it ends up on the ballot in 2020, I don't know yet. I think it's important to say that bonding isn't new revenue. I'm not convinced that we need bonding or that it's a responsible financial decision. What we need is new revenue and we need folks to agree on a solution about that. I mean, just to go back to some of the previous conversation, uh, there will be people who hear you saying we need new revenue. We need more revenue. And then who look at the rather large bites that Democrats chewed in the last session with with reinsurance and full day kindergarten and who say, well, when will their appetite stop? Full day K and reinsurance were both bipartisan. And, you know, the proposals that Republicans have put forward for more transportation funding is cut Medicaid funding. That's not something we're willing to do. It's not something the public supports. It's not a good outcome to just have more sick people in Colorado. So that's a non-starter for us. Okay. On the subject of health care, the public option is another proposal likely to come up this session that would allow individuals to buy into a state-backed insurance plan. Uh, it would also allow the state to limit what hospitals can charge those policyholders. According to the Colorado Sun, opponents of a public option have already spent more than $100,000 in ads opposing this. The Colorado Hospital Association calls it unacceptable. Will there be a public option after this session, four months So the governor put forward a proposal, and there are some legislators working on drafting it. There are a lot of issues to work through. Uh, Your own party isn't in agreement on this. I think our own party is interested in continuing to address the escalating costs of health care. Let me just say I'd that say in many parts of Colorado, there's there's only one option for health insurance. The idea behind this presumably is to introduce a little competition. I think that's what folks hope. There are folks working on drafting a public option and working through the issues that others are raising about the downfalls of that. And if they can be successful, I think we'll see something move forward. Another issue on which Democrats don't necessarily see eye to eye is paid family leave, which you mentioned earlier. This would provide time off to care for newborns, also, you know, for major illness. A committee that studied this recommended something similar to a proposal that failed last year. It would have the state administer the program, collecting money from employers and employees to pay for it. 
you know, Governor Polis asked the committee to consider another option, which is to have the state require that employers provide this, but let them buy their programs on the private market. Do you have a preference when it comes to paid family leave? So first, I'd say I think there is broad support amongst Democrats and amongst many Republicans that people should be able to take time off to address their own health or their family's health concerns without losing a job. But the particulars of it, the details of it matter. The governor did ask the task force to consider a private model versus a social insurance model. What do you like best? I am going to stay open to both options. Should the state be in the business of administering something like this? There are pros and cons to both. You know, the social insurance model, I think, can really benefit low-wage workers and is less likely to end up in discrimination. I think the private model leaves a lot more leeway to business to figure out for themselves how to provide paid family leave. I don't know right now what's going to be proposed, and but I do want to see something pass. And I think the bill sponsors have done a good job um, of working with stakeholders over the last few months, making sure all sides have the opportunity to share their concerns. You have talked about bipartisanship, but, you know, 2020, do you, there's an election going on. I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> it, it could get ugly with the presidential race, a U.S. Senate campaign in Colorado, all of the members of, of your chamber, the House, up for re-election, and uh, impeachment in Washington radiating. Can you honestly keep the peace? So election years are tougher years. There's a lot more campaigning done at the Capitol. Tell me what that means. Legislators are much more aware of what they are saying publicly and what they are proposing publicly, who's listening, who's watching. Everything's a campaign. Everything becomes a campaign. I think it generally makes folks more cautious. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, what we really want is well-vetted policy. We don't want the toxicity of Washington to come in to Colorado or to the General Assembly specifically. So I think we're always looking out for that. But, you know, you can't wait, control wait, everything. Wait, what that means. You're always looking out for it. And how you do you know, nip it in the bud if you see Sure. Can? It's really important for us to keep things civil. Was it always that way last session? Were there lessons you learned? I'm always learning lessons. Uh, we can always do things better. You know, there's a saying that the majority ends up having its way, but you have to make sure the minority has its say. You know, there was one issue where folks didn't feel that was necessarily true, that it was moving at such a breakneck pace that it it unsettled folks. And that had to do with repealing the death penalty. This got sidelined last session because of two Democratic members, both who lost sons to homicide. Do you think that the death penalty will be repealed in Colorado? I think the bill will come forward. I hope it gets repealed. I personally don't think the death penalty achieves a lot. I think it's very expensive, and I think it's arcane. I hope it'll pass, and I think it can pass this coming year. What would be different? I think there's been work done across the aisle with members to bring people on board. Does that include your own members? Yes. I couldn't give you a final vote count, you know, and tell you where every single member is. It's a sensitive topic, whether you're personally affected it by not. It's a very sort of personal decision about how you feel at the on the death penalty. 
But I think more and more across the nation, we're seeing red states, blue states, I'll say, I don't know that this is serving anyone well. You think there are more votes, though, than last year? I do. You do. Speaker, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. State House Speaker Casey Becker is a Democrat from Boulder. Tomorrow, Republican Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert. Session starts on Wednesday. A question has been dogging Sarah Westmoreland for a really long time, and we're going to take it on today in Colorado Wonders. I've been driving up I-25 to Boulder for about 15 years now, and ever since I was a kid, actually, I grew up in Denver and wondered, when you go north of uh, downtown Denver on I-25, what is that kind of industrial smell, and is it safe to breathe? Westmoreland says it isn't easy to describe the smell. One specifically that I noticed kind of like mothballs, if you remember what those smell like. I remember what those smell like. (laughs) I still smell them. So the laugh you just heard there belongs to my colleague at Denverite, David Sachs. He's been looking into this very question, going over nearly four years of odor complaints and has some insight. Hi, Dave. Hi, Ryan. Yeah, so I'm going to say right out of the gate that a lot of the smells around the city are actually really hard to pin down. The area she's talking about is where the majority of odor complaints actually come from in Denver. It's in North Denver. So it could be from any number of sources. It depends on where the wind is blowing and where you smell it. Doesn't the smell itself, though, tell you something? I mean, she said mothballs. Yeah, the mothball smell does come primarily from coppers, which is a wood treatment facility that make things like telephone poles, things like that. Uh, Yeah, it emits creosote. And naphthalene is one of the chemicals in creosote. And it's also the chemical used in mothballs, which are insect repellents, as we all know. Cigarette smoke and car exhaust, they have the same chemical present. Okay, so a wood treatment facility has been making me think for years that there's a mothball factory in Denver. That is not the case. What else is contributing to odors of all sorts in Denver? There are 11 key emitters of odor that you might smell citywide, especially in North Denver. They range from an oil refinery to a pet food plant to wastewater treatment to an animal rendering plant. And they're all in sort of this industrial Bermuda Triangle where a lot of stuff's going on, but it's hard to understand exactly where the smell is coming from sometimes. Okay. Now, in your online story, uh, you describe these various emissions as smelling like tar and asphalt, dead animals, chemicals, burning things. I suppose these things mix together, but is there a major offender? People tend to think there's one or two bad guys. They often assume it's the Suncor oil refinery, which is just across the border in Commerce City. And that operation does emit a lot of smelly things like hydrogen cyanide. But when the public health department and others investigate complaints, they find quite a few offenders. According to a University of Colorado study from a recent year of data, the five worst were the Purina Pet Food Factory, um, Suncor, that's the oil refinery, Owens Corning Denver Roofing Plant, which can smell like tar. Uh, There's a rendering plant, Darling International, that can emit the smell of dead animals because they process dead animals there and turn them into useful things. Sewage is the fifth one, and that's likely from the Metro Wastewater Reclamation District. Such a bouquet that this just creates over Metro Denver. You know, Sarah, our question asker in Colorado Wonders, told us that she regularly smells these smells. But just because you smell it, that doesn't mean a company's violating 
like odor restrictions. That's right. It doesn't, um, they could be, and they can get fined for that. Uh, but just because you smell something doesn't mean the companies are in violation. Naturally, Sarah asks if breathing these odors is safe. So that also depends. If you captured the emissions in a bottle and breathed them directly, that would be harmful. I went through four years of complaints, and people claimed things like uncontrollably watering eyes and trouble breathing, but the CU study didn't have the resources to link physical health to the odors. But we can look at some of these individual ingredients. So the culprit behind the mothball smell, Copper's creosote wood facility, what do we know is coming out of there? Carcinogens. Uh, we know those are harmful, though less so when they're diffuse in the air. Okay, then Suncor has come up several times, which releases hydrogen cyanide. What do we know about it? We know that uh, in its concentrated form, it was used by Nazis to kill minorities in World War II. Um, There's no federal or state limit on what can be emitted, and Suncor needs permits to operate, but they set their own emission levels. There are lawmakers who say the government should be setting those regulations, those emissions levels. Yeah, and there are regulations, but they're based on a combination of science and politics. Um, They aim to set a safe level for emissions that are known to affect health. Um, And the state and the city monitor for violations. But of course, there are some who say the levels are too lenient and aren't safe. Industry tends to say the opposite. It strikes me, Dave, that smell in many ways, is related to quality of life, though. Right. In the CU study I mentioned before, the doctor who led the study, Shelley Miller, did find relationships between offensive odors and well-being, which is essentially the state of being happy and comfortable, uh, whether you're comfortable with your kids playing outside, for instance. Dave, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. David Sachs of Denver writes, So what do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know. It's cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Okay, one of the paintings in the big Monet show in Denver was only just restored. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf has that story. Six of the works you'll see in the show are from the Denver Art Museum's collection. My name is Pam Skiles, and I am the senior paintings conservator here at the Denver Art Museum. Skiles helps care for these Monets, including an iconic painting of London's Waterloo Bridge. So I removed the varnish that was on that painting about a year ago now. Varnish needs to be replaced every few decades because it can yellow, but this time was different. We have a fair amount of documentation that indicates that he did not want his paintings to look varnished. So when I took the varnish off Waterloo Bridge, I did not replace it. She says Monet's art dealers wanted to varnish the painting so they looked finished, but Monet didn't like the glossiness of it. Removing it not only respects Monet's original artistic choice, Skyle says, it also gives the art more brightness and dimension. You can better see the texture and colors, the pink, lilac, and pale green. Even though they had evidence to show this was what Monet wanted, they still had to weigh the risk to the painting. So the curator and conservation team talked it all through, as they do with any treatment to art in the museum's collection. Skiles used organic solvents and hand-rolled cotton swabs to bit by bit remove the varnish. We do testing before to make sure that we know what's safe for the paint layer, but we'll also remove the varnish. The center of the painting, where the paint is extra thick and textured, was particularly tricky. There was a little bit that took a bit longer, and I did that work under the microscope. She says it took more than 15 hours to get the job done. And the Denver Art Museum isn't alone here. A number of other museums have also made the call to remove the glossy varnish from their Monets. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Claude Monet, The Truth of Nature, is at the Denver Art Museum through February 2nd. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a man who's trying to disrupt 
the funeral business. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Over the next several weeks, CPR reporters and editors are talking to people around the state about what you think is important, what you want the candidates to talk about, and what issues you need more information on in order to cast your votes next year. Go to the Colorado Public Radio Facebook page to find a meetup near you. Or take our survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. Death is ripe for disruption. There's burial and cremation and a host of new options, which is our focus today in Disruptors, about entrepreneurs trying to inject new ideas into their industries. So what do you want to have happen with your body after you die? Well, to some extent, the law limits how you can answer that. We're going to start with CPR's Benta Berkland, who reports that Colorado could be the next state to explicitly allow remains to be composted, a process that turns a body into soil in about a month. Supporters say the process of turning a body into soil is cheaper than the average burial, uses less energy than cremations, and gives a little back to nurture the earth. You can plant a tree or flowers in it. You can put it in a pot inside or put it outside. That's Democratic Representative Brianna Titone of Arvada. She's working on a bill for the coming legislative session to make it clear that Colorado allows body composting. You can spread it out in a forest or your favorite park where you wouldn't even know it was even there, but it was adding nutrients to the soil. A Seattle-based company has a patent pending and a process that uses wood chips, straw, and alfalfa to decompose a body inside a vessel. Founder Katrina Spade came up with the idea as a graduate student when she began to think about her own end-of-life wishes. It's really a way to take what nature does anyway and all over the world in forests and meadows and help it happen a little bit faster. The timing for Spade's company seems to be right between the burgeoning alternative death care industry and people's increasing environmental concerns. So when you put those things together, you start to think, oh yeah, this is pretty practical. It's actually a pretty logical next step. A decade ago, most Americans had a traditional burial, but now a slim majority choose cremation. And the alternatives to those two options are increasing. Aside from birth, Death is literally the only experience that every single one of us will have. Jamie Sarchez with the Feldman Mortuary in Denver. Most of their customers opt for a natural burial, which means minimal or no embalming and a biodegradable casket. She hopes a discussion at the state capitol will encourage more people to give thought to their end-of-life options. And we really ought to be talking about it. And anything that we refuse to discuss just has way too much power. Human composting won't appeal to many, of course. And it will still cost several thousand dollars more than cremation. But advocates say they want it to at least be one more option on the market. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Now, another option people are turning to is water cremation. What is water cremation? Ed Gasvoda. Water cremation is a way to quickly compost a body. So you take organic material, which is what your body is, and you break it down into its elements. But rather than turning it into soil, we turn it into a plant biostimulant. So you become, in a way, the fertilizer as opposed to the soil? 
you become fertilizer. Exactly. So there's a field up in Windsor where they uh, were using animal essence and putting it on their hay. They got a five-fold increase versus their neighbor. So it's a very powerful plant nutrient. So we don't waste the human. We actually turn them into something where they can go back and become a tree or enrich a forest. And this, uh, you say, is happening already with animals. I mean, we are animals, but uh, with livestock, perhaps, and uh, you're bringing this to human beings. Everyone, this is Ed Gasvoda. He owns a startup in Arvada called Sustainable Funeral. And say more about the process of water cremation, which is also known as alkaline hydrolysis. So alkaline hydrolysis 2.0 is a patent-pending process that was invented by some biochemist professors at the University of Northern Colorado, and also a ball systems engineer out of Lafayette, Colorado. Okay. And so what happens is a body is brought into our facility. We're also a funeral home and technically a crematory by law here in Colorado. And we add potassium hydroxide. So that's uh, potassium, which is an essential plant nutrient. So that helps upcycle the cadaver. So rather than just taking a cadaver and leaving it out in the woods and let it nourish in the forest, by the time we're done, we actually made the body more beneficial to the forest or to the tree or the lawn or the pasture than it would have been otherwise. How long does the process take? And, and maybe just paint a picture of what it looks like. Sure. There's uh, the new life chamber is a... Wooden... That's what you call the new life chamber? Right. Because when we're done with the body, it actually has new life. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like an oversized coffin. So it's wooden on the exterior. And on the inside, there's a stainless steel bath. And it has no holes in it because what we do when we're done is we actually take the liquid and put it into reusable plastic containers that the family can take and put on their lawn or tree or forest or wherever or send to another country. And then how long is the process? From start to dissolution. So that's when there's no DNA left, there's no tissue, there's just bones and liquid takes two hours. And then to get it ready for the earth, we have to bring the pH down and we bring it down to a six and a half to a seven and a half so that it's actually good for the soil. And that takes typically about another half hour. And then it still takes time to uh, package up the essence and then also take the bones out, dry them, and then we still have to break up the bones by law. You have to break up the bones. Sure. Okay. And is, th- are, is that returned to the family? Oh, yeah. We return it in a cotton bag that's just plain and we tie it with jute string. We don't s- upsell anything. We don't sell any caskets or we don't sell any urns. We won't even do any uh, cremations or any burials. And what about like you know, hips, if I have an implant or something like that. Those are beautifully returned to us in in their sterile so that we can donate them. They can be reused, not in the U.S., but we can send them off to other countries. So we've been collecting that and collecting all the mercury in the teeth. We get the teeth back and we save that mercury and it goes off to get reclaimed rather than becoming uh, either methyl mercury or going up in the air. Do you make money off that stuff? We haven't. No, we give it away. I know that in California, there were some concerns about the water use of this process, especially in an arid place like the West. Speak to that for me. Sure. Um, Alkaline hydrolysis, as it's currently practiced in L.A. at UCLA's anatomical lab, uses one and a half times the weight of the body in water. We don't use that much. So we use uh, about 0.7% of the water, 70% of your weight in water. So we're using a lot less. A lot less, but still water-intensive, would you say? But it's not going down the sewer. It's going back to the earth. So it'll eventually end up 
in the aquifers or back in a cloud or up in the sky. Or back in a cloud. Why do you think, uh, if I, can I call it the, the industry of death? Is that? The death industry, yeah. yes. Why do you think it's ripe for disruption? Because it does things that aren't good for the people, the places, your pets that you loved. It actually takes money away from the living. It harms the environment. And the way it's currently done is there's a lot of incentive to upsell, upsell caskets, upsell space, upsell uh, meeting rooms. I mean, the list goes on. And so by the time a grieving family's done, they're passing the hat, they're putting out credit cards. It just doesn't make sense to me. What do you want to have happen with your body, Ed, when you die? Well, I'd love to go back and be spread around a tree. I mean, I hate the idea of people going to a cemetery and visiting my grave, but I'd love for them to go back and just see a tree and know that my essence is in there and that I actually supported and made that tree healthy. Why do you hate the idea of a grave? Well, they're they're really toxic waste sites because they contain 300 times what would be the safe limit of mercury, and that comes from the amalgams in the teeth. Because if you go to a, a typical cemetery, they bury 900 to 1,200 bodies per acre. So if you just do the math, about the amount of mercury in the teeth, that becomes methylmercury, which is a bioaccumulative, second only most hazardous to radiation material. Wait, this is just naturally in our teeth, or do you mean in like dental supplies? It, it's in dental. Uh-huh. So that's what the average human has, about it, two to three grams. I mean, that's stunning. If, if you're saying this is, you, you, you have, of course, a motivation to make burial seem really awful. Uh, th- th- that seems a bit extreme. Well, it also takes up land. You take up resources. They typically make you put a, a concrete vault around your, your casket. Um, anything in your body that's still a virus or bacteria can enter the aquifers. If you get embalmed, I always say uh, if a funeral home does embalming, you should boycott it because embalming puts formaldehyde in the aquifers, which is a known carcinogen. And it makes no sense to embalm a body. So all that goes into the earth, including wood, brass. Uh, sometimes they use mahogany. So they're taking down uh, expensive woods or rare woods from rainforest. I mean, the whole industry is, is a little bit backwards because the body doesn't contribute anything to the earth when it goes into a cemetery. In fact, it takes land from future generations. You, you don't doubt, though, that there are people who want that a touchstone, for lack of a better term, in a headstone. I think in the past, I think times they be a change in, as Bob Dylan said. And the reason for that is we're more conscious that with 8 billion people on the planet, that taking up resources for future generations makes no sense. The ongoing upkeep of a cemetery is incredible. When you think about they're watering the dead, yeah, some people are going to want it, but not here in Colorado. I mean, about 30% of people might get or do get buried here in Colorado still, but 70% choose cremation because it's less environmentally intensive. How many people have opted for this uh, with your company? So far in, in Colorado, eight. Eight. We're brand new, so we, we're just getting the word out. Mm-hmm. How does the cost compare? That's obviously something that goes into uh, the, the thinking after death. Sure. I, I think there's a lot of money that should be left for survivors. Uh, if you get buried, you're looking at 8500 to 9000 based on ARP's estimates. If you get cremated, if you go to Olinger's or um, Haran and McConaughey, you're going to pay over $2,500 for a direct cremation. So we're at $2,500. So we're 
about the same price as a direct cremation at some of these corporate-owned uh, funeral homes. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Ed Gasvoda owns Sustainable Funeral in Arvada, where he offers a service called Water Cremation. And he joined us for Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurs in Colorado. The U.S. Army is trying a different approach to recruiting. A new marketing campaign called What's Your Warrior began in November. There's not as much crawling around in the mud and more emphasis on tech. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce says the goal is to show potential recruits a different side of Army service. Recruiting company commander Josh Trankel has been touring brand new recruits around Fort Carson Army Base in Colorado Springs. They stopped by a shooting simulator, peeked inside military vehicles, and now Trinkle announces it is lunchtime. Enjoying a, a wonderful gourmet MRE. That's a meal ready to eat. Hey, you need water. Soldiers hand out the brown plastic packages at random. Some recruits are just out of high school, looking for that classic Army experience as a gunner or an infantryman. Then I speak with one woman looking to go into communications. Another man is aiming to jumpstart his career as a firefighter. Next... I meet Crystal Townsend, sitting cross-legged on the grass, peering into her MRE sack. I ended up with menu 11, which is the vegetable crumble with pasta and taco-style sauce. Townsend is 35, on the older end for a recruit. When I was younger, when I was 18, 19, I did want to join, but I wasn't really confident in myself. I didn't know anybody in the military, and I wasn't really sure I could do it. She ended up in law enforcement, a deputy sheriff here in El Paso County. A stable job, a professional career. Still, as she got older and closer to the maximum age for enlistment. Looking back and having those regrets, it was just eating at me. And I finally said, you know what, I'm going to go for it. The range of ambitions these recruits have is exactly how the Army is hoping to sell itself to the next generation of service members. The new Army marketing campaign is called What's Your Warrior? And the first ad looks more like a trailer for an effects-laden superhero movie than a traditional recruitment pitch. Helicopters flying through mountain passes, a woman at a computer terminal communicates with a satellite overhead, a scientist is hard at work splitting microscopic cells. There's this idea amongst lots of youth and perhaps even parents that there's only one way to serve, and that's in a combat role. Brigadier General Alex Fink is the chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. He's behind What's Your Warrior? Fink says military marketing that focuses on the glory of battle just isn't working like in the past, especially as fewer and fewer Americans have family military legacies to live up to. It's really more about surprising our audience about what you can do in the Army. So the emphasis in What's Your Warrior is on showing the variety of career fields and the real-world benefits of service through the glitzy TV ads and a social media campaign with a more personal touch. So a lot of the skills that you do learn in the Army are... Individual soldiers talking in front of a simple black background about their experiences. It taught me a little bit more in depth of IT, the software, the network, the different devices and such. The Army hopes showing itself as a team of highly skilled professionals will appeal to the young people in Generation Z. I have the opportunity to go get more certifications that will end up helping me in the civilian sector. And the initial figures for this campaign have been pretty good. 
What's Your Warrior debuted in November, and Brigadier General Fink says the number of people filling out reply forms on GoArmy.com has jumped 35% over last year. But that's just the first step. It's great and fine and dandy to fill out a business reply card online, but um, how does that translate into uh, actually getting folks to make a commitment? Um, so we'll see. You guys want to fire again? Because we can bring some. Different and that's where the individual relationship between recruit and recruiter comes in. Colorado Springs Company Commander Josh Trankel says his recruiters are using the new What's Your Warrior campaign to start the conversation. That's where the art of it is. They really need to know how to take that message and give it to the students coming out of school these days and make sure that they know the opportunities that are available to them. For new recruit Crystal Townsend eating her vegetable crumble on that Fort Carson tour, the logical path would be to move from her job as a sheriff's deputy to military police. Instead, she's looking at something completely different. My number one pick is military intelligence. I would figure it'd be a waste of opportunity to not go into something else, challenge myself by learning a completely new field. She says the diversity of career options led her to choosing the Army over another military branch. If What's Your Warrior works, a lot more people will be taking a look at those options, too. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. I'd like to take you on a stroll. This is my walk home from work, and there are still patches of sidewalk where ice and mush have stuck around after our most recent storm. And I have to say, I'm especially careful these days where I step, because I slipped and fell on the ice a few storms ago. And it's made me wonder if there are tricks to avoid falls, maybe better ways to fall, Oh, wow. This is really icy here. Okay. It turns out this is a really fortuitous time to ask these questions. And why don't we just go back to the studio so that I can explain. I'm going to turn off my phone because I need to pay attention. This is way too icy. So here's why this is an important conversation now. This Thursday stands out as the most dangerous day for office workers. The most accidents happen January 9th. This is according to the state's largest workers' comp insurer, Pinnacle Assurance. So what's going on? Pinnacle's senior safety consultant, Ellen Sarvey, is here to explain. Ellen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. How does January 9th compare to other days of the year, first off? Well, when we put the numbers together, it was really quite surprising. There was a 62% increase in accidents that happened on that day over the last five years. 62% over the average? Yes. Okay, so there's something about this day. And, you know, with my recent fall, I'm very curious to know if it is related to snow and ice. You know, it definitely is. One of those days, and it was back in 2015, was a freezing rain, drizzly, not a lot of snow accumulation, but that particular day was one of the biggest days for accidents that we've seen over the last five years. Okay, so weather has something to do with it. What else do you think might be contributing to this pocket on January 9th? Part of it's weather, but we think part of it might be due to the fact that folks have been off work for a little bit. Uh So they're just coming back. They might not be familiar with what's happened outside between the holidays and coming back to work. They've been so nestled inside. Exactly, exactly. So things might look different, right? And inside could happen too, because if you're tracking stuff inside, that could make it really slippery when you first come in the door. There's also the whole issue of just getting out of your car and what the ground looks like around the car. We do see a lot of accidents occur with slips, falls, 
trying to get out of the car and get into your place of work. You surveyed several years of data and January 9th just stood out. This is about office workers, though. And, and when I think about workplace injuries, you know, I'm imagining people who work in factories or with power tools. Why focus on office workers? Well, that was just the type of employee that came up to the top of the the injuries that occurred on that date, but it really was across the board. It's looking at all of our workers in Colorado on that date. Office workers just happen to have the most accidents on that particular date. Okay, and we think it's partly because all office workers essentially have to get either, you know, from their car into their building, but there's usually some sort of exposure where they're outside. And just to be clear, if I am walking from my car to work and I slip and fall, that is a workers' comp issue. In most cases, if you're employer is providing that parking lot and you're on their property going into your work, that's probably going to be covered under work comp. Maybe there's a little gray area, though. There might be some gray area. And that's something that you can always report the claim and we'll figure it out. What are more dangerous days for other types of workers? It's kind of interesting. We see a most dangerous day for construction workers in July. And again, you kind of think Maybe that's just the height of their season? It's the height of their season. And the same thing for like hospitality. We have a lot more of those types of employees out there uh, during that time of the year. And so that's why it does make sense that we would see a most dangerous day for those types of industries more in the summertime. It's fascinating, though, to look at, you know, it's big data and say, what, what trends are we seeing? All right. What's the takeaway here for workers and, frankly, employers? Right. So this is one of those things where we know these accidents are preventable. If we can bump up awareness a little bit, get employers to better understand what what might be about to happen, get them doing some awareness training with their employees, talking about the hazards that exist out there. And what do you say? Don't slip and fall. I mean, that's not helpful advice. Yeah, it's not quite enough, right? (laughs) We need to do more things. If you have had any kind of slip fall accidents, maybe you need to change the order of your snow removal in the morning or get the snow removal crew out there a little bit earlier. Maybe there's a particular parking spot that's on a little bit of a hill that never gets that sunshine that that sees the true melt. So maybe you have to block that off or recommend that employees don't use a particular staircase on the north side of the building that gets icy. Is it also possible this is about distracted employees? I mean, distracted by phones. That, that's I check things. myself, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm walking to work and I'm, I'm looking at the news and then I think, you know what, I really should have my eye on the sidewalk. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, the conditions change quite rapidly. And even though the storms here in Denver were a few weeks ago, there's still some very slick spots out there. So if you're not paying attention, if you're looking at your phone, if your hands are stuffed in your pockets, you, know, you might not be ready to uh, react to something that's a little bit more hazardous. I'm so glad you said if your hands are in your pockets. My grandfather always told me when you're walking, don't put your hands in your pockets brace your fall. That's what hands are for. That's what arms are for. Is that good advice? The advice is to have those gloves on so you can help with your balance as much as anything. You Uh. need to be careful about bracing the fall because then we see a lot of broken wrists and, and that sort of thing when folks fall down. So keeping your hands out of your pockets will hopefully help you from keep you from falling down altogether. Oh, interesting. Okay, he he was close. He was close (laughs) to the truth. I think so. Are there better ways to walk to avoid falls. Definitely. Okay. Uh, the probably the most important thing is to just slow down. That's probably the biggest problem with slips falls is folks are in a hurry, you get a little bit of distraction in there and that's a that really contributes to the Th- falls. That is exactly what happened with my fall a couple of weeks ago. I was just very quickly trying to get snow and ice off my windshield 
and I wasn't being mindful about where I stepped and I fell backwards. Okay, so speed is part of it. Speed is part of it. One of the visual clues that we give folks is to walk like a penguin. Might sound a little silly, but it really works. If you think about a penguin, penguin doesn't have his hands in his pockets first off, right? (laughs) So he's got his hands out for balance. And think about that slow, deliberate movement, kind of with your toes pointed out a little bit, with your feet planted flat on the ground, gives you really good contact with the ground. Walk like a penguin. Walk like a penguin. I also am mindful of the kinds of shoes I wear. I have gathered from experience that some of my shoes are more slippery than others. Yeah. All you have to do is look at the bottom of the footwear and make a good choice in what you're purchasing to walk outside in the wintertime. Most winter footwear will will say something like that on the bottom. It'll say slip resistant or snow traction or something like that to give you a clue that that's what it was built for. I'll just note for those who are aesthetically inclined, you can also bring a change of shoes that you can wear to the office. Exactly. Exactly. And we encourage employers to encourage their employees to do that. Give them a place where they can put those snow boots so they can put on their nicer shoes or their dress shoes or their work shoes. One of the the footwear types that we advocate is for like restaurant workers and healthcare workers, which is a slip resistant shoe that has a special grid pattern on it that's really built to help keep them on their feet on like tile floors and wet floors mm. and things like that. But those particular shoes really don't do good out in the snow. Come January 9th, Ellen, are you just going to stay home? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That's Ellen's survey of Pinnacle Assurance, the state's largest workers' comp insurer. Their data show January 9th is the most dangerous day of the year for office workers. At a quick correction, penguins have flippers, not hands. All right, it's time for us to waddle off the air. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.